Welcome to today's Entrepreneur, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business, presented by FL Montreal. My name is Dan Delmar, along with Mike Newton of FL. Hey, Mike. Hey, Dan. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Thanks. I'm really excited for this episode. It's our last show of the year, and this is something we've never done before. We are going to speak to an NHL franchise executive. I'm sure this is going to be a really fascinating conversation. Yeah, you know, I met Greg uh, first time, almost about a year ago at the John Molson School of Business Sports Marketing Conference. And as I was preparing, uh, I guess his, I don't know if it was Greg or his assistant, had sent me over his three-page bio uh, for me to read through as I was getting ready to MC the event. And, and, you know, my first thoughts are, here's a C-suite guy, here's a pro sports exec, and here's a lawyer. Ouch, this is going to be painful at the end of the day. I have to tell you, if you know, if you've ever learned not to judge someone off their bio and their title, this would be the case. Uh, Greg is personable, he's a gentleman, and he's a true mensch. So this should be this should be a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm fascinated. I mean, being a lifelong hockey fan, you know, you wonder what happens behind closed doors, and uh, we'll get a little bit of that tonight. So Greg Kirstein is the senior VP and general counsel of the Columbus Blue Jackets. He'll join us in a little while. But first, as usual, some news and notes. Um, let's begin with um, this interesting piece from Harvard Business Review, Mike. And you made me get a subscription because um, it's, I have to say, there's a, it, there's a lot in there every week. And it's, uh, it's been really fascinating to read. And one is, is 10 leadership lessons from COVID field hospitals. Because if you can learn those crisis lessons from people on the front lines, I mean, uh, you can do anything, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, we've, we've, we've kind of focused in these areas, I think, since we started the season back in September, but there's a lot of areas and, and a lot of things that come out of, uh, you know, of, of, of pandemics or crises that leadership really, you know, separates, I guess, the, uh, uh, those that really know how to lead and those that don't. And, you know, when you look at some of these areas, I mean, it, it, these, are, these are pretty fascinating. And I have to tell you that of the top 10, I would probably say at least nine apply to every single, every single business. Yeah, let's go through through a, a couple of them right now. So um, uh, acknowledging uncertainty is, is, I think, a really important one on, on the PR level because I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of, of sugarcoating things when, when people know what's going on. Yeah, definitely. I, th I think the reality, and, and you'll, you'll see as we go through a lot of these points, that being real has really become the, you know, the, the, the new call of the day for, for leadership and, and acknowledging the fact that we live in there and not trying to hide behind the fact that everything's wonderful and everything is okay. Acknowledge the uncertainty. You now make a connection with those people, and that, whether that is you know, the doctors and the nurses or whether that's your employees. You know, expressing the fact that we don't know really what comes tomorrow. There is no playbook in a, in, in a pandemic. And ultimately, at the end of the day, the whole goal is to try and make that connection so you create this 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 bond between between your team. The other one, which you know, really is is you got to focus your search. I mean, obviously, uh, when we run business on a day to day under normal terms, we're a little bit all over the place. And one of the things that really brings some strength to the exercise is this ability to focus the search and you know, admitting there's uncertainty, but trying to find, you know, narrow down those areas and, and stay on focus and stay on point to keep your keep your team going. Uh, I also found delegate authority number three to be pretty challenging. I found during the pandemic, I had the option of working 12 hours and delegating or maybe working six hours, 16 hours and not delegating. And I would often choose the latter, uh, which is not healthy. <laughs> yeah, well, there, I think there's a difference between delegating authority 
and making sure that the buck stops with somebody at the top. And, and I think there's an important aspect that, you know, there's no doubt that authority on certain areas needs to be delegated. There's no way one person can handle anything. But I think you do need to remember and the team needs to remember that there is one person that's calling the shots. You know, I've never been a big fan of, of leading by committee. Uh, ask my partners, they'll tell you that. Uh, but I really do believe that you need, you need one person in charge, but then you need to delegate down into certain areas. Number six is really interesting. Legitimize reversal. Um, that can be tricky. I mean, what happens when things change or you change your mind? Well, you know, a lot of this plays into to ego and goes back a little bit to the first question when we talk about uncertainty, right? People, many people don't want to admit uncertainty. You know, everything's fine. It's all under control. Most people don't want to admit they made a mistake. In a time of crisis, one of the best things you can do is, is, is admit that this was the wrong choice and move on. I mean, every day we get new facts. If you go back to March, you know, March 16th or pretty much when we all kind of went into this whole new world, uh, every day something new came out. So if you put out protocol on the 16th, chances are by the time you hit the 23rd of March, it had changed. Now you've got a choice. You can either dig your heels in and say, no, I was right and stick to it and likely mess things up. Or you can, you can, you know, you, you, you can call an audible. And, and I think that's where when you go back to the, this whole discussion of delegating authority is you still have to have somebody who's going to admit they made a mistake, you know, and, and, and move on from there. And the piece, the leadership lessons from COVID hospitals, field hospitals, ends with the one piece of advice that they feel is uh, has been most scientifically validated, and that is simply being there. As long as your leader is on site and present, that's the most confidence-inspiring thing you can do. Yeah, at the end of the day, whether you're actually contributing or not is, is a relative term. I mean, the fact that you are there in the trenches with everybody and then you can take this back to, to war as you can take it back to a pandemic, as you can take it back to day-to-day -day work. You know, I've always been a firm believer of rolling up your sleeves and, and leading by example. And, you know, for good or bad, and I'm sure there's a few days where, you know, people wish I wasn't here on a regular basis. But, uh, you know, I've been in the office since, uh, since the end of May with very few days that I haven't. Why? Because I think it's an important aspect that the team sees that, you know, those people that are leading uh, have their best interests at heart. and We're not kind of throwing them to the wolves at the end of the day. Also from HBR, this piece, uh, self-compassion will make you a better leader. Um, certainly self-compassion, and I always say meditation and taking some time for yourself to just have a quiet moment during the day um, will make your brain work better. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I kind of read this one and, and chuckled. I, I can relate to three uh the self-kindness one i'm not so and it's not that i don't believe it it's just not i'm not so good at the self-kindness component uh you know the three elements of self-kindness are mindfulness common humanity or humility and self-kindness and i think in a world where uh, you know, we need to admit that we feel off, that we have a bad day, that we are human, that we are facing the same uh, hardships that everybody else is facing, and that we are not standing out there on an island all alone, go a long way in allowing us to, to do what we were just talking about, which is, you know, make a mistake and correct it. Uh, lead by example. You, you know, you need these things out there in order to be able to, to lead properly and you know, we live in a world that's very different than, you know, 50 years ago where, you know, the, the, the leader was, was constant stoic and, and uh, you know, a very, very general uh, mentality. We live in a world now, especially in, the, in, in a professional environment, where people are really looking to connect. And it's very hard to connect if all you want to say is, nah, it's all good. It's all going to be fine. Don't worry about it. You're all good. And you, you have to be very mindful of what's going on. And Mike, uh, very excited uh, for a while, for months for this one. Uh, really fascinating conversation on the way with Greg Kirstein, Senior VP and General Counsel of the Columbus Blue Jackets. Mr. Kirstein, welcome to today's Entrepreneur in Montreal. 
thank you for having me. Much appreciated. So maybe just a, f a couple of seconds on the intro to Greg, just to kind of uh, contextualize. Uh, Greg has been with uh, the Columbus Blue Jackets pretty much since day one, going back to 1998 when the franchise was was granted. Um, prior to that, uh, he had, did have a life as a as a partner in a law firm uh, for a number of years, and as well, uh, you have a little bit of uh, a sports reporting uh, history there as well. So, uh, and I think you went through Duquesne uh, University uh, and journalism at the, or from Ohio State, like a few years a few years back, right? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> I don't want to antiquate myself. Yeah, well, unfortunately, we all seem to be hitting that lately. So, and and I think COVID's added a few years to all of us. So, yeah. um, you know, the, I guess the first the first question is, um, you know, a what got you into law going back to uh, you know the, those days as well as journalism, and how did that how did that get you in uh, get you a job at the Blue Jackets? Yeah, um, I'll try to give you the short version, Michael. Um, so, um, you know, I'm a reformed sports writer. Uh, I had been fortunate enough to. <clears throat> I interned in Detroit with the morning paper there, uh, then to the afternoon paper in Pittsburgh, which is now defunct, and then uh, for a year and a half with the Miami Herald. And I, you know, I started to know my way around professional and collegiate sports. And um, then I had this ex-girlfriend and and uh, tenth grade social studies teacher both pushing me that I'd be a wonderful lawyer. And uh, I was uncertain. Um, I started late. I was 25 before I even started law school, uh, 28 when I got done. And then all of a sudden I found myself being an insurance defense lawyer with zero sports practice. And uh, that little malady took uh, nine years to heal. <laughs> um, and uh, I took a time out along the way. I went to uh, Temple University in Philadelphia as the assistant athletic director for a year. And I just had this conundrum in my head, sports or law, sports or law. And um, a short version, 1991, minor league hockey came back to Columbus, Ohio for its fourth time. The first three franchises had failed. Our town was growing and relatively entertainment starved, except for Ohio State football and basketball. And all of a sudden, an East Coast Hockey League franchise in Columbus, Ohio was selling out at 6,000 people a night. And making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year profit. And um, I, I became their lawyer. It was 90% of my fund, 10% of my income. Um, and then we took the proceeds from the East Coast team, uh, built the first ice rink ever in Columbus the, in 15 years to grow the game. And um, then we started building the second ice rink Along the way, my law partner gave me our minor league baseball team as an account because uh, he had done it for years and he thought I was becoming this sports guy. And then we got a call from the people that currently own the Blue Jackets who are you know, my bosses and have been wonderful to me. And they wanted to invest in our ice rink company. And to be frank, we thought the call was a hoax. Um, th these were some of the most powerful people in the city. And we had one ice rink built and another one under construction and we couldn't believe that they wanted to invest but that's because we didn't know that they were kicking around uh, applying for an NHL team. So that's sort of the 1982 to 1997 story. We noticed uh, in your bio that the franchise has existed for 20 years, but there was three years of building leading up to, to day one to the puck drop. Tell me about those three years and how intimidating it must be to just start a NHL franchise from scratch. Uh, is excruciating still a word? <laughs> um, <laughs> 
we opened the office with uh, four people, uh, Doug McLean, our president and general manager, uh, Kathy Little, who is a VP of marketing from the parent company and is, is still with the parent company as a VP, uh, me and uh, one administrative assistant. So four people walked in the first day. Uh, over three years, that turned into a staff of 150 people. Um, we were in a satellite office. There was no arena. The arena was two and a half years away. There was a big empty site uh, where a prison used to exist and it was full of gravel. And um, we, you know, we were trying to put this thing together from scratch and people think, well, what do you do first? Um, we started working, Dan, on a lease for a building that didn't exist. Um, and then we were approaching the regional television networks uh, from a credibility standpoint, trying to make sure we would be on the same sports channel as the Cincinnati Reds, the Cleveland Indians, the Cleveland Cavaliers, those sorts of things. Um, so, so that's how we kicked it off. Um, it was a little crazy with four people. You know, it's funny because you, 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 you listen to the years of franchises, you know, as uh, hockey, as baseball, as everybody else, franchises have moved from city to city based on not being able to attract a crowd or not being able to fill an arena. Uh, funny, a lot, funny enough, last night I was watching uh, the old major league with uh, Charlie, uh, with Charlie Sheen and, and uh, Tom Berenger and, you know, the whole moving the franchise away from Cleveland, uh, trying to move it down to Florida. And, you know, we, we've watched these things over the years and the, the we have a tendency to forget that this is a business at the end of the day. You know, we see this as entertainment. We see it as, you know, bigger than life, but there is a business that keeps this going at the end of the day. And it's not all glamour and glory. Yeah. These Mike, I mean, these are 1998 numbers, but the McConnell family who owns the franchise committed to an $80 million investment. I don't know what that would be in today's dollars. Mm. Uh, and you had to pay it in two installments. Um, Nationwide Insurance committed to build, at the time, a $150 million arena with private money. Um, and, and so you don't make those kind of decisions without uh, some trepidation and some, some due diligence. Um, and then at the time, you know, the, the payrolls in the league were anywhere from 20 million to 35 million. So you knew you were gonna bite off on a, a NHL payroll and you had to go find a city to host your AHL team. Um, you know, we started in Syracuse for the first number of years, um, but but those are every one of those has a dollar sign to it. Um, and you know, we tease at the office if you've seen the movie Happy Gilmore, where he carries the big cardboard checks in his back seat. We, we took one of those forty million dollar cardboard checks to New York to Commissioner Bettman's office just for kicks. But it's real money, and this is a real business. And when when you start, when you, you start raising the money and committing, I mean, how many season tickets have you sold? Yeah, at the beginning, uh, there wasn't much choice. One of the mandates that the commissioner's office put on the expansion franchises, which were Nashville in 98, Atlanta in 99, Columbus and Minneapolis in, in 2000, we had to sell 12,500 season tickets to meet a, a bogey that had been set by the league. And that was to show that we were real. So... 12,500 in an 18,000 seat building. It had to be two thirds pre-committed and the league reserved the right to take the franchise back if you couldn't do it. So it was serious business. And, and before any of that's done, your, your, your investors have already committed dollars to this project. So it's not like they've committed knowing they've got 12 and a half thousand. Yeah, there's some uh, periodic payments that go on in the beginning that lead to that 80 million. 
and you know probably led to the 500 million for Las Vegas a couple of years ago but those periodic payments are nothing small trust me as lifelong hockey fans mike it's just uh, it's really really fascinating to to find out how these organizations are run and i'm curious as someone who works in marketing and pr greg um here in montreal we have a very unique environment when it comes to media and our nhl franchise our media is very shall we say um diligent uh when it comes to following the team i mean we have an, an entire industry really that 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 is uh in the orbit of the montreal canadians what kind of pressure are you under in, in Ohio, and uh, have you developed at least something of, of, a, of a, a, a hype and media culture there? Um, yeah, I, I, so if we go back 22 years, <clears throat> 1998 through currently, I would say there's more pressure now than there was at the beginning. Um, the equivalent I can give you, the, the pressure you have in Montreal with the hockey team is what the Ohio State University football team faces in Columbus. Uh, it's 24-7. It's 365 days a year. Uh, when Rick Nash played for us, one of our early great players, uh, Rick liked the fact that he could hide in Columbus. No one knew uh, NHL players. You know, it was an acquired taste. Uh, that's changed, and it's changed a little bit, Dan, because we've won a lot in the last five years also. We, we've become a perennial playoff team, uh, which didn't happen in the beginning, but – um, you know, we're, we're uh, from September until May, we're in the news every night, television, radio, internet, social media. And um, I, I feel, you know, we have a foothold now. Um, uh, in the early years, it, it was tough. It, you know, it was pricing that fans had never seen before. They were used to college sports. Uh, it was a sport. Many Ohioans grew up on football, basketball, baseball. So if you don't know the rules and you don't know the players, it's a tough um, commitment to spend your money. Um, and we, we've overcome all those things. Uh, you know, so so has the Nashville franchise, which was two years older than us. We, you know, we were in brand new territory. But uh, so I would say, yeah, media pressure is a little tougher now than it was 20 years ago. Now they expect us to win all the time. So what was what has been the LeBron factor? in terms of sports within Ohio, in terms of coverage? Has it been good for hockey? Has it been good for the Blue Jackets? Or has it been a takeaway? Um, we're, we're fortunate, Michael. Um, you know, we've got Ohio State, Bowling Green, and Miami University of Ohio that have always had NCAA Division I teams. Um, and those are those are longstanding. And, they, you know, they play major collegiate hockey. Uh, Cleveland has always had an AHL team. Toledo's always had an East Coast League team. So does Cincinnati. So it's it's not as if it was this foreign, foreign, foreign thing. The NHL was brand new and the pricing was brand new. Um, you know, the, the LeBron factor for us was finally getting over the hump starting in uh, 2014. We, we made the playoffs once in our first 12 or 13 years. We've now made it uh, four of the last six or five of the last seven um, and it changes things. It just makes your job easier, whether you're selling tickets, sponsorship, TV time, um, <clears throat> or even when the evil team lawyer walks into the room, people like you more. <laughs> so, so for us, winning has been a magic elixir, uh, as, as cliche as that sounds. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, if you're going to ice or field the winning team, it makes uh, it makes a huge difference. With maybe over the years, the exception of Toronto, going back to the Harold Ballard days of the '70s, uh, the Leafs, uh, you know, they could fill the ring no matter who was playing. Uh, other than that, definitely, I think a winning team is, and and it's certainly, you know, you've done a 
to me, you've done a fascinating job, and, and I guess this is this is an NHL uh, kudos as much as it is a Blue Jackets. But Nashville, uh, yourselves, and Vegas are just phenomenal franchises, relatively quickly in in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, we we tease that we're a teenager. Uh, we've we've been there twenty years. <clears throat> we had one complete lockout in 0405. We had a partial lockout in twelve thirteen. And so we see the logos at center ice, New York, Detroit, Pittsburgh, they have a 50 or a 75 or a 90 for how many years they've existed. We're 18 years old in terms of ice time. That makes us a teenager. And so we're pretty proud of what we've accomplished. And if you saw, you know, our Tampa series two years ago when we swept the best team in the league and you saw our building, uh, you would agree that hockey has a pretty good foothold in Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, the, the, it's evident when you see this on screen that uh, the, the, your your fans are as devoted and as dogged as, as as anybody else at the end of the day. And I have to say, it's it's great to you know we've we've always considered hockey to be you know Canadian at the end of the day. And you know, when every time we we moved into different franchise areas, it was a skepticism. But uh, you know, I, I think the NHL and and the individual teams have, have done a great job. Uh, it can't be easy from an HR perspective. Uh, you know, as much as you guys are successful and as much as the franchises and the league have been successful to, to manage, you know, behind the scenes team who doesn't get the notoriety, say that the players get, and they know they're actually, you know, as vital in some cases to the running of the organization. And like any other pro sports team, they're, they're, you know, managing the, uh, the elite athlete uh, can, can be challenging. And, and then you got to do all of that within a, within a cap. So, yeah. Um, well, we're, we, we have uh, two uh, concepts that we look for in people on the HR side. We look for performance and fit. And um, performance is, can you do the job? And we, we hope that you come to work every day with an attitude that whatever department you're in, you want to win the Stanley Cup for that department. Um, uh, we look for high achievers. Uh, we, we look for people that produce. Uh, and uh, on the fit side, we look for good people. Again, another cliche, but if, if we can surround ourselves with the 150 that work for the Jackets and another 1,000 people that are part-timers that work for the arena, if we can get most of them to perform and to fit, uh, we're going to put on a, a product that's really, really special. And, and so those are sort of our standards. Um, and and we, we challenge ourselves. We, we, we try to be accountable to each other. Uh, we, we try to be uh, in a friendly, uh, comprehensive, but collaborative fashion. And um, I think if you talk to our people, uh, a great overwhelming majority of them are pretty happy that they work there. Um, we also have very fair ownership. I, I use that word a lot. Uh, sure, there are tough days at every office in, in North America. It doesn't matter what business you're in. So I've been there, Dan, 22 years, and uh, I've never seen an employee treated unfairly. Um, it's one of the best things that uh, we have going at the Columbus Blue Jackets. It's funny. It's it's an interesting concept. You know, we we all we all talk about chemistry and culture on the ice or in the locker room. Uh, but the culture behind the scenes is is equally important to to the success of the franchise and the team. You know, no different than your ordinary business where you got a couple of people that are out there, you know, kind of in the limelight every day, and then you got the bulk of those people down in the trenches. And, and it's nice to hear that there's a, an, an equal amount of uh, of uh, support and uh, I guess accolades going to to the team that nobody sees. Yeah, and, and so Michael, one of the standards I use and and um, 
the HR department reports to me and we've got a wonderful director, but I, I ask our people all the time to have an attitude of how can I help as opposed to what do you want? And I, I think there's a stark difference between those two concepts. Excellent. So the I'll, I'll challenge you with the last topic, which is, uh, I guess, uh, is always difficult, is is uh, star players being traded and, and, and moving people around. Uh, you know, the, the, the contract world of, of hockey is certainly not what it was 30 years ago. Uh, this is big business now, and your players need and, and, I, and I guess that is a bit unto itself uh, from that perspective, right? Yeah. The, so, you know, we, we've got uh, highly paid, highly talented people who do nothing but manage the salary cap. And uh, they've got a dossier on the 700 men in the league and the 700 men in the AHL. And we know when everyone's contract expires, uh, we know who their agent is. We know which cities their spouse might prefer. And uh, you're projecting forward five, six, seven years uh, uh, to, to, to fit all these little parts together and produce that product that's going to win on the ice and be an asset to the community. And so uh, that's a thankless job because if just one widget is out of place, your team might not perform at the level for which you're paying. <laughs> Let's bring into the conversation Julie Cote. Uh, Julie is a tax specialist in real estate for non-residents at FL Montreal, obviously something very close uh, to the concerns of, uh, of uh, NHL teams and those who have people moving around the continent. Julie, welcome to CJD. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me. And Mike, certainly uh, uh, something that applies to NHL teams. I mean, it must be difficult to, to manage people and also to manage their finances and their assets. Um, it's a lot of work. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you know, you look at this and obviously some of the issues here are, you know, sometimes you have a forced move. So if you get traded, there's a forced move across the border. Uh, for other people, it's, you know, setting up business or it might be, you know, a COVID environment. Uh, we've seen a lot of people come to Canada over the U.S. politics over the last four years looking to have a, uh, a place to go. So one of the things that most people don't recognize is what are the tax implications of, of acquiring a residence cross-border as an American coming into Canada or for anybody else for that matter? Julie, you know, what when we're looking at some of these things, like what attracts uh, a foreigner to invest in real estate market in Canada or, or in the more specifically in in the Montreal area. Well, Mike, we are having a very different situation this year with COVID. We see a lot of people buying properties in order to come and self-quarantine and ride it out. Uh, so this has been new. But um, in the past, pre-COVID, uh, pre uh, well, there's a lot of factors. People love Montreal. Um, uh, the market in Montreal is very stable. The dollar is very good. The exchange rate, uh, when you can get 25% or 30% of your money for free, uh, when you do ex the exchange, uh, it's, a, it's a good investment. Uh, the properties, they do retain their value. Uh, it's not crazy or anything. And uh, basically, it's safe. Uh, of course, uh, when you are a hockey player, you want to live in the city where you work. So we do see a lot of these and uh, they want to buy properties uh, around the arenas. What I mean, yeah, this, this all sounds really simple and easy. The reality is, is once you cross the border into a foreign jurisdiction, uh, we live in a world of compliance, uh, paperwork, filings. Uh, what are some of the things that a, a, a non-resident buying uh, real estate here in Canada should look at? And what happens if they also decide, hey, I'm only here for part of the year, I want to rent it for the rest of the year? Well, a lot of foreigners forget 
the tax aspect of it all. Uh, most of them believe they don't have to report anything to the Canadian government, whether it's their rentals or the capital gain when they sell these wonderful properties. Um, so basically, uh, it's important to get some advice. And uh, also, they, they think that um, because they own this property, it might make them a resident or of Canada or that it automatically qualifies for their principal residence. Um, Assuming things is the worst road to go down here. Uh, there are so many rules and factors to consider about Canadian residency. Don't guess. Uh, Greg, Christine, I was wondering, uh, and of course, we're not asking for details, but uh, often real estate and assets can, can complicate perhaps some deals. Um, is that ever a factor when, when players are, are deciding where to sign and whether or not to sign on the dotted line? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Dan. The first concern that the players have if they're coming from one of the seven Canadian franchises to Columbus is their immigration status. How quickly can we get them in? And, and then can we get their spouse or girlfriend in? And then can we get their kids in? Um, and believe it or not, we spent substantial time solving those for people that we're about to acquire. Excellent. Thanks, Greg. Julie, um, what are some of the misconceptions that the owners have uh, of real estate? Uh, that it's easy and straightforward. Uh, you need a team uh, to help you. Like in anything, anything else, uh, I'd say do your homework. Don't assume anything. The first step would be to just consult a tax specialist to plan the structure of your purchase while considering the long-term goals for this property. Maybe right now you want to live in it, but once you trade to another team, uh, maybe you want to retain it and rent it or buy it or put it on your spouse's name um, and the structure at the beginning is very important because once it's done it's done and it can be very costly and a hassle to undo it very much uh, you know in play here is is uh, Greg and Dan were just saying when you're talking about being, being traded across the border uh, you end up in multi-jurisdictions for taxation purposes and that probably in and of itself could be the uh, topic of an entire show and the complications that come with that um, but there's no doubt that uh, you know people uh, certainly the the, the the pro athletes or doctors or you know a lot of professionals find themselves uh, working in another jurisdiction and and I think ignorance uh, you know poses a lot of problems to a lot of people. You hear a lot of athletes, you hear a lot of entertainers who find themselves in hot water subsequent uh, to doing things, having moved into a different jurisdiction. And there's no doubt that, uh, you know, real estate plays a very large uh, part of it. And, and I think, Julie, as you said, that ability to, to get proper advice uh, sets things off uh, way before you start. You know, uh, it's much easier and cheaper to do it up front than it is to do it after the fact. But is it better be safe than sorry. Julie, thanks so much. And uh, we've come to the end of our show. Greg Kirstein of the Columbus Blue Jackets, we, we really appreciate your time so much. And we conclude all of these shows uh, by asking our guests for just a, a piece of wisdom. Their one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur. So we'll, we'll hand it over to you, sir. Well, I, I would say this. Um, if you're in the sports world, be genuine with your fans. If you're in the business world, be genuine with your customers. Because on both fronts, they know it if you're not. And we have prided ourselves on being transparent, authentic, genuine with Columbus Blue Jacket fans. And I think 22 years in, it's paying dividends. It's sort of a hallmark of our organization. So that would be my takeaway. 
Excellent. Well, Greg, it's been a pleasure having you. I must admit, I feel like a kid in a candy store at the moment. So uh, I will, uh, I will, I will stop talking before I start to drool. But uh, it, it is always a pleasure to uh, to not only have somebody that uh, you know that, that that lives in the world that we all kind of dream about, but uh, somebody that has taken the time and the effort and the gentleman that you are. So, Greg, on behalf of uh, of the show, thank you for uh, for your time and for your energy. I've been very fortunate, and we're glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much, Greg. And we're taking a pause for the holidays. Mike will be back on January 18th, and we'll see you then. Don't forget, over 10 years worth of entrepreneurial insight at todaysentrepreneur.org. All the very best for the holiday season from all of us at FLNTNKR Media. See you soon. Happy holidays to all. Bye.